ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. And I just happen to be David Grubb, so that's a good thing. Um, today, I happen to have with me someone who I first reached out to almost like two years ago. Uh, he and former New Orleans Hornet and NBA champion David West were just starting to talk about at that time what is now known as the Professional Collegiate League. So to talk about the league um, and so much more, I welcome to the podcast for the first time, the founder, the co-founder and CEO of the PCL, Mr. Ricky Vellante. Thank you for having me, David. This is uh, long overdue. I'm glad to be able to finally join you. Yeah, I mean, like the first moment I really saw your ideas um, you know, I reached out to you and just, I didn't even have a show then. I didn't have anything. I just was like, man, what can I do to talk about this? And I, I remember writing an article about it um, and, and getting the word out that way. And I've just been fascinated by it since. And this year um, has kind of highlighted all the things that you've been talking about since this first became public. Um, before we get into the nuts and the bolts of that, Let's just give folks some of the background on the league, a um, little bit of the history on that, and, and how this movement, because that's what it is, it's bigger than just a business, it's a movement, and how this became a part of your life. Yeah, so I guess to start from the beginning, I was a college athlete myself. While I was a freshman, I tore my UCL, had to have Tommy John surgery, uh, essentially was discarded by the coaching staff, ended up transferring. Um, my sophomore year, so it was like a month into my sophomore year was when I actually had the surgery. So most of my sophomore year, I was doing physical therapy on my own, ended up transferring to a school just outside of Cleveland, uh, D2 school, played a couple more years of baseball, finished out my, my undergraduate eligibility, got pushed in the direction of law school. And while I was in law school, I worked for the Mid-America Conference and uh, for a year within the compliance and enforcement division. And so I got to see how from the inside, these, uh, you know, the campus, the campus compliance office, the conference compliance office, and the national conference compliance office uh, in Indy, how they all interact with each other, and how essentially they work together to make an example of every athlete that breaks the rules. And that didn't feel right to me. So when I was finishing up law school, my antitrust professor introduced me to this guy named Andy Schwartz, who had happened to be the economic case manager on the O'Bannon case. He's mm -hmm. now the economic case manager in the Alston case. He had also worked the white VNCA case in the mid 2000s. Uh, his first sports law case uh, was Raiders 2. Uh, so he, he worked, I think, on behalf of the, the NFL's league office on that case. But so a guy that had figured out that the antitrust laws and the labor laws applied to college sports really exposed all the issues that exist within this, this model. And so he proposed this, he, he handed me, you know, we, we did this article on O'Bannon going through like the economic and legal implications of that decision. And when we were done, he handed me this like six page document that proposed what if the HBCUs broke away from the NCAA had a third party or you know private partnership with a, a for-profit entity that would pay them pay their players salaries and the HBCUs would pro provide the the educational context and, and the scholarships and I was really intrigued you know I had certainly thought about ways to combat the NCAA from a, a legislative standpoint from a litigation standpoint you know, uh, right as I was finishing up law school was the Northwestern situation with King Coulter. So, you know, seeing what it look, might look like if college athletes unionized, all of that ended up failing. And so this kind of, this got my wheels turning. Well, let's just compete with the NCAA and make a better model. And, you know, so we went down that path for uh, about 18 months trying to convince HBCUs to join us. Ultimately, didn't it, the match was kind of imperfect because what we wanted from the HBCUs was going to expose them to to risk, whether it be from uh, from the NCA itself, whether it be from state legislatures potentially 
you know, messing with funding, funding mm-hmm. and things like that. If, you know, all of a sudden the best basketball players in North Carolina are going to NCA and T and North Carolina central instead of Duke and UNC, there might be a few politicians that are going to take note of that and maybe do certain things to, to curb that effect. And mm-hmm. so we found that that just wasn't going to be the, a great match from the HBCU perspective. And then also from investors, basically we were asking them to put up all the money to fund the salaries, but then we were only going to give them back 50% of the returns because we were going to have to have this right. you know, major rev share with the schools. And so it just, from a fundraising standpoint, we ran into a lot of issues. From the HBCU standpoint, there was concerns of, of repercussions for joining us. And we decided, okay, there is no need to include higher institutions or institutions of higher education in the leadership of this organization. Because the moment you introduce them, no matter who they are, you reintroduce all the conflicts of interest that exist within college sports. Right. So then we said, you know, let's just, let's just do our own thing. Let's make eight teams. You know, well, originally we were looking at maybe doing nationally, but then I spoke with uh, some former commissioners of upstart sports leagues, uh, talked with Ebersol from, from the, uh, the AAF, talked with uh, General Sullivan, who'd worked for the Arena Football League and for, uh, I think, the previous iteration of the Women's Professional Soccer League before the NWSL. Mm-hmm. And, and so got a lot of feedback from them on the, the – the, um, they, they said stay away from the bigger market, from like the huge markets. Like everybody's going to tell you have a team in New York and have a team in L.A. And everyone that tells you that is wrong because <laughs> the, the amount of money that you're going to have to spend to just let alone get people to your games, just to, so that people know who you are and that you exist is going to be so exorbitant that there's no chance you're going to be able to get a return on that. So instead build a really good league with a small geographic footprint and then expand to those bigger markets and go into them with excitement as opposed to having to build something from scratch. And so that's why we ended up uh, in the end deciding our our eight cities were going to be Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore, Richmond, Norfolk, Raleigh, Charlotte, and uh, Atlanta. So that's, uh, I I hope I've I've given you a nice little arc there of how the league developed. (laughs) Yeah, and the the funny thing is that this year, um, well, one of the things that I like the way you describe yourself is as a disruptive person. And of course, this year has been disruptive to us all. And I know it's been disruptive to the plans that you had, where you would want to have been at this time um, in development. What have been the challenges that you've had to face because of the pandemic and just altering the schedule for the start of the league? Yeah, it certainly has It's impacted everybody. It's turned the entire sports world upside down, especially. And, you know, we're no different. I would say that even before the pandemic, we were always going to be hyper-focused on our digital audience rather than our physical audience, because we aren't going to be able to have necessarily the, you know, top of the top hundred million dollar basketball arena as our home base that, that universities can offer. So we were never all that focused on the people within the arena or having major arenas as the setting for our games. And in fact, we'd even kicked around the idea of, you know, not having a a fan base in, in the arena at all and potentially doing it on like sound stages, uh, which we were, we were, I guess, a little ahead of the curve on, on how we were thinking about that stuff. And then the pandemic struck and then it kind of forced everybody to do those sorts of things. So that was actually good for us because then it proved the concept that we have been trying to tell people this is the future of sports. This is, this is what we need to be focusing on. You know, 99% of a fan base never steps foot in your physical facility. You know, I mean, the, so from that perspective, we need to be really, really focused in and keyed in on how the viewing experience is going to be for our products digitally. And so that, that's been a good thing for us that, that people have now seen. We're not crazy. This can be done. You, you can pull off a really high quality basketball product and not necessarily have fans sitting there. I enjoyed so, it better, frankly. 
Because it, it <laughs> yeah, made the focus I mean, more on basketball. It took all the annoying parts of having to watch people climb into the stands and move out of stuff. It's just – and the players don't have to worry about stepping on somebody's foot while they're – I thought it just made me focus so much more on the game to not have to deal with the fans from that perspective. I enjoyed it. Exactly. And, and I did too, for the same reason, like I'm there to watch the game. Like when, when I go to games, I'm usually the one that stays in my seat the entire time. Like yep. I'm there to watch what's happening on the court. I'm not there for all the other amenities that maybe come along with, with going into an arena. So for me, it made total sense of, I just want to have the absolute best viewing experience possible. And so it also, that also kind of opens the door to groups that are looking to be engaged with the sports community from a technology standpoint that we can sort of serve as a testing ground. Obviously we don't want anything gimmicky. You gotta, there's a tension there between being willing to push the boundaries, but not crossing into the territory of gimmicky. Cause once you do, then it just delegitimizes the whole product. So for us, um, what's been, I guess the negative of the pandemic, uh, you know, David and I were traveling all over the place the last couple of years, you know, there's, it's hard to replicate that in-person mm-hmm. face-to-face uh, experience that you get talking with people that, that, you know, we've been really fortunate. We've had, a lot of great people commit to being on our advisory board, to being on our athlete advisory board, and to otherwise, you know, being being involved behind the scenes. But all of that was through relationship building. And, you know, so that, that's been difficult part for me personally, is not, not having that connectivity with the rest of the team. You know, uh, D- David and I were together the night the, the night of, and then the next day we were actually down in North Carolina when the NBA shut down and then the uh, ACC tournament shut down. So we actually drove through Greensboro that day. Um, so that, that was the last time I saw him in person. That, that was the last time I traveled. That part's been difficult, uh, but everybody's dealing with that. You know, we're not special in that sense. So, um, so just in terms of like getting quick momentum, things have slowed down because when you're talking money with people, like they want to see you in person, they want to know who you are mm-hmm. and uh, you know, conversations that could take place over a couple of days and be done, get stretched out over a month or more because you've, you just got to find a way to sort of replicate that relationship building process. So that's probably been the biggest hurdle for us to overcome. One of the, the, the key elements of this is that board and it is so diverse in its makeup, not only in the representation of people, but the representation of industries and experiences. Um, I think that is a vital component that we are now commenting more and more on across sports that we want to see that um, diversity of thought. It challenges people to do things differently. And it also brings things to the table that maybe other folks, no matter what their perspective might've overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. I I remember when uh, I got together with with Soledad. So right as we were we were getting her on board, she happened to be doing an event in Cleveland. We were already in talks with her production company to to develop a docu series based on the league. And so I you know reached out to her assistant and said, "Hey, let's let's get together." You know, and my my goal was to get her to commit to the to the advisory board in addition to what we were going to be doing with her production company. And she commented that what she knows about sports could, you know, fit on the, the head of a pin. And I'm like, I, I don't care. Like you, you have been, you know, such a force in the world of content and coverage and media and diversity. That's all I care about. And that's the perspective that I hope we can tap into. And, and the knowledge base that we can tap into is, is all of your, your learned experiences and all the great work that she's done from from a news coverage standpoint and from building her own company like let's not also forget that part like she's the ceo of her own company um so you know we that that's been the sales pitch frankly a lot of the people on our advisory board there's a few but most of them don't have a ton of experience in sports and right and that's okay because you know frankly the management team you know myself david wendell uh keith and andy to a lesser extent but but still for both of them you know, all of us have made careers within sports. So like the sports part isn't what we need help on. <laughs> so, so yeah, we wanted to build out diversity of thought 
and diversity of backgrounds and experience. And we also, you know, something that I personally focused on from the beginning was being appropriately representative of the product that we're going to have on our courts. You know, when you have in college sports, you know, upper 70 percentiles up into the 80 percentiles of white administrators, uh, whether it be the coaching staffs or the athletic departments, and that's not representative of the sport. And so I wanted to make sure that the group that we built out was actually representative of the people that are participating in our league. The academic portion is so unique in the fact that you address people where they are. If they're, they're interested in two years, there's two year options for them. If they're interested in four, there are four year options. And you talked about internships and you've talked about mentorship and you've talked about life skills as well. You know, how to pick an agent, how to do financial planning, all those things the things that athletes on the NCAA level have been asking for as basic requirements for years, and you're incorporating those in a fully integrated uh, way. Yeah, I mean, I going back to my own personal experience, you know, like I said, I started off at a at a four year school uh, where I was probably going to major in in poli sci, and then ended up with the injury, went to a community college for a year and then ended up going to, to a different four-year school to finish my, my degree in sports management. And I think back to that because each, like there was nothing wrong with going to a community college, like going to the community college helped me one, stay close to home. It kept things affordable. You know, I was, I was on a lot of painkillers going through, through my surgery. So I didn't exactly want to be like in a dorm room on my own, uh, away from, from my family. So I figured like at least having that part would be helpful in going through that process. And, you know, David had a very different experience. He was four years at Xavier, you know, and, and that was that, but you know, every, every individual is different. And the idea that everybody should be forced into this single, you know, square peg, square peg round hole situation where everybody has to be this way. Like that's just not the way to develop people. So instead let's figure out each individual athlete and tailor a program to them, you know, so that, and going back to why we don't have schools directly involved in our leadership, we didn't want to limit the options that athletes would have instead, you know, cause it, the moment you have that direct partnership with the school, you know, if, if we're partnered with, I don't want to like throw anybody under the bus, but say we're, you know, we're partnered with a particular university in a particular state. They're going to want, yeah. Right. They're going to want all of our athletes to go to their school period, Mm -hmm. whether it's the right situation for them or not. Whereas instead I'll use Richmond as an example, since that's where I'm from Uh, you know, the the players that are ultimately going to play on our Richmond team, you want to go the four year route. Great. Go to VCU go to U of R, you want to go the HPC route. Awesome. Virginia State, Virginia Union, you know, either one, you want to go to community college, we'll send you to J. Sergeant Reynolds. Like no matter what, we've got an option for you. And then we can even take, take it down lower than that. We can go strictly trade school vocational program, or we can go online program. If you'd rather go to like Arizona States, you know, like totally online sport management program, like we can do those sorts of things so that we can find the right fit for you as opposed to telling you, you've got to do what we tell you. And, you know, I think that's the way that college sports should be, but we all know that's not the way it works. No, it absolutely doesn't. Um, Cause it's essentially one year contracts um, over and over again that you, and it doesn't matter. You can get a 4.0, you know, this, you, you like say you got hurt and now you're of no use to me. You didn't do anything wrong. You got hurt in the execution of your, you know, athletic responsibilities but it doesn't protect you. And I think that, you know, that part of it, uh, of a system that doesn't take care of you, but promises you so much, but never delivers on those things. I think it it has to change. The dynamic has to change. And I think athletes are becoming so much more aware of their power. And this year in particular, we've seen them assert it more, but we've also seen the pushback of trying to find ways to minimize that and kind of, just silence it through some verbal placations, but not real Mm -hmm. action. Yeah. I remember having, so Bamani Jones did a story for, for Vanity Fair uh, that, that him and I talked at great length about, and that was right at the the beginning of 
the college sports run up. So teams had been been reporting football was going to go all across the board at that point still. Um, there was the beginning of the Pac-12 and Big Ten player movements and the Mountain West, and there was a couple other conferences where players came together. And I told him, I said, look, if I'm Larry Scott, I'm just postponing the season. I said, that, that's what you do. You dare the athletes to stick together for four months. They won't. Like, and, and that's not – I don't say that as a knock on the athletes. I just say that like, it is – people don't realize how difficult it is to unionize a group of anybody, <laughs> let alone a group of athletes that are only going to be at this institution for a handful of years and to keep them totally focused and aligned over a period of time where they maybe get shut out of their sport. Like that's, that's super tough. Like I know the Syracuse eight did it, although there were nine of them, but the, the Syracuse eight did it. You know, there've been a few examples of athletes that have like gone all the way and, and sat and never played again. But for the most part, that's not what's going to be the end result. And then sure enough, the PAC 12, announces they're going to they're going to delay the big 10 announces they're going to delay those were the two conferences that had the big conferences that had threatened boycotts uh, if they didn't give in to certain things and then we see several months later uh like what happened to those no one's talking about the pac-12 player movement no one's talking about the big 10 player movement they're playing in the middle of the pandemic now we've got you know almost every big 10 game this coming weekend's been canceled sec as well so yeah, the SEC as well. So I mean, it's it's um, yeah, that it's so difficult. And and I, but it's exactly what I would have done if I was Larry Scott or if I was any of, uh, if I was Kevin Warren because you dare the athletes to stick together, knowing that they're probably not going to do it, and eventually they're going to say, "Well, wait a minute, we won our chance." And now you totally flip the script. Now the athletes are begging to play as opposed to saying, well, if you don't meet these demands, we're not going to play. Instead, exactly. you know, you, again, you, you, you create that, that thirst to get them back on the field. And it worked to perfection, unfortunately. So and now those guys are, are risking themselves every, every day, every weekend. Yeah, because, I mean, that's essentially bullying. And if you had a union, if you were players and you had a legal rep- representative who could be protecting your interests and would say, no, you don't go out there without these concessions. You have to get these things from the university before you step foot on the field. But then you see state attorney generals telling schools, basically, we won't hold you liable if people get sick. You see the NCA pass on it and say, we're not going to create a uniform protocol. You see if they, they pass it down the conference and say, we can't have a uniform protocol. That's up to the universities themselves. Then the universities say, well, we're just going to follow what the, the rest of the league does. And you have leagues that don't report any data at all on their testing. And then on top of that, well, it's just the overwhelm. I just have to make sure people understand just the, the piling on of this bullshit, because then you see what happens with Nick Saban, who gets a positive test on Monday, passes on Friday, is coaching on Saturday. You know he was in his facility without a mask on. He's on the field with close contact with players. No punishment. Trevor Lawrence gets COVID-19. He's on the field against Notre Dame. No punishment. This is just insane. And we're, and we're sequestering kids now out of the states in which they, their schools are just so they can pr- play football. Yeah. I mean, the, the, whatever veil left that there was that these are amateur sports has been pulled back. Uh, I mean, we've been saying it for years, but I think people are finally starting to realize what's really going on. And I mean, to your point, you've got, um, you, you've got teams now that are, are staying outside of their state because their, their state said you can't play here. So we're, we're going to go chill in Vegas for, for a few months. Like that, how is that college sports? But, and, and this is where I have may, I maybe divert away from the rest of those that are working within the athlete advocacy space. So many people are focused on reforming college football or reforming college basketball in the NCAA. And maybe they'll, hopefully get to the point that I'm at at some point, but um, it won't work because even if you change the rules, you still have the same people in charge. And so if you give them a new set of rules, they're just going to work within that new set of rules to do everything they can to screw over the athletes. 
And we have 114 years of evidence that that's exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> so why, why spend all this time, energy, and effort on trying to reform a system that are run by corrupt individuals that are never not going to be corrupt. So, and, and so that's the part I don't get that, that other people are, you know, are, whether it's legislatively or whatever. Okay. Well now some States are going to have name, image and likeness rights. They don't yet. I want to make that clear because a lot of people are mistakenly believing that, that those are in effect now they're not. Uh, the first one that may come into effect is Florida in July one of 2021. However, there's still a long road ahead of us between now and then. We, we have the federal bills that that probably aren't going to get passed. I mean, there's a few things going on right now that the government needs to deal with. So the probably college sports is not exactly at the top of their their to do list. Um, and, I, and again, I don't mean that as as a negative. They should be focused on some other right, things. But we're right, but we're saying now, these but. issues. Are, this is just <laughs> reasoning as to why things will take longer. Yeah, so that's going to take longer than people expect. And, and those that very hard-headedly believe that this July 1, 2021 date is actually a deadline, it's not. The NCAA, I think there, there was a case Miller v. NCAA in the, I think it was 93 when it was decided. It is a Ninth Circuit case, so technically it would, it would not be controlling precedent in, in Florida circuit. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it's an informative case where a state statute, not on name, image, and likeness, but it was similar in the things that it attempted to restrict around coaches, was deemed to be a violation of the NCAA's rights under the Dormant Commerce Clause. And I think whether they end up being successful or not, the NCAA is going to run that exact same play. The moment, So July 1, 2021, if, if Governor DeSantis actually tries to enforce this name, image, and likeness legislation, Donald Remy, who is the COO and general counsel of the NCAA, they are going to sue the state of Florida. And even if they don't win, they're going to be able to hold up the enforcement of that bill. So the, the idea that July 1st, 2021, the world is a better place in college sports, I think is not correct. Uh, I think that there's still a, a very long road ahead. And that's why, again, I go back to what we're doing. Let's just start our own thing. We, we don't need the NCAA to have college sports. <laughs> And I, I, I say that, and, and it's been brought up too on the professional side. You know, we've had at different times players have talked about, well, what if we did something else? And, I, and I've said that at this time, this year, evaluating this country and saying, we don't have to do, we don't have to play their game. Whatever that game is, we don't have to play in their sandbox. We can go get our own. And the size and scale may be different, but if it's mine and I control it, I have equity in something for the first time. I'm not an employee. I am a, an owner. I have, I have something that is going to work for me. And as long as the players don't have standing in those boardrooms with those university presidents, as long as the system is built on profit under the guise of nonprofit, these things, they cannot be fixed because they're just going, like you said, they're going to figure out the loophole and the way to put the punishment. The punishment always falls on the kid and never the institution, not in any meaningful way and never on the coach, not in any meaningful way. And it's just, they know that they have particularly poor families over that barrel of saying, this is your only way out. When they know good and darn well that most of those kids, they don't care if they graduate, they just want their bodies until they use them up and spit them out. Yeah. And I mean, and even in the coaching spot, like I, I would feel remiss if I didn't bring up, you know, when, when the DOJ and the FBI took their shot at college coaches, you know, they fell flat at any moment that they tried to get a white coach. You know, they, they went after Will Wade. <laughs> they went after Sean Miller. They went after Rick Pitino, but he, their case was just flimsy enough that somebody with that financial wealth independently was going to be able to bring forth a legal team that, that would rip those tiny little holes apart. And now all of a sudden the case falls apart and the Southern district of New York does not bring suits that they're going to lose. That is not how they operate. That's, that's not the, the reason why they have. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why the Southern district of New York has such a high conviction rate. It's something like 95 or 96%. Like it's because they don't bring lawsuits that they're going to lose. And so they can get Book Richardson. They can get Merle Code. You know, they can get those guys that 
don't necessarily have the wherewithal to put up as strong of a defense. And they also know that the, the optics of it, like they can paint these people to be quote unquote criminals and no one will look twice. They, they'll just agree. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, again, that's, that's just, it's an egregious miscarriage of law. And it's American, I mean, that's what it is. It's typical though. It's getting the street guy on the street corner, selling the vial, and not getting the people who are bringing it in or distributing it. You're just getting the, the little guy off the street to make people feel good. We did something. Look, we got, he's the, he's the bad guy. Cause yeah, there's no plot. We, we don't apply that kind of deniability for anybody else, except in college sports where people can constantly walk around and say, I had no idea why my player got this amount of money. I had no idea that we were recruiting with hookers. I had no idea that all these things were happening. It's just not, we would never accept that for an executive, which is what a college basketball or college football coach is in any other area. I think back to my personal college experience. And again, I just played baseball. I didn't even play a, ma- a mega revenue sport. Um, and at both the division two and division three level, my coach knew everything that went on. Everything we did, they knew. <laughs> almost instantaneously. You know, if there was a house party, the coach knew exactly which house we were at. They knew who was there. Like that's the way that these college campuses work. So the idea that these, that these coaches making millions of dollars, whose programs generate tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year, don't know what's going on on their campus. If you actually believe that, you never participated in college sports in any way. Or even new athletes. Because if you know <laughs> right. them and talk to them, that th- you can't be 10 minutes late for class. Somebody knows. You know, mm-hmm. there are eyes everywhere. It's, it's that kind of – and it's the same when the NFL does this thing and they say, well, we didn't know he – no, you, they do FBI background checks on people, on players. But then you see stuff like, you know, the Tony La Russa thing where, hey, it's Tony La Russa. We got to be respectful of Tony LaRusso when he gets a DUI. Had that been a player, it doesn't go down like that. And had it been a, a non-white coach, they would have probably already been fired too. Oh yeah, that had been Ozzy Guillen <laughs> doing that and saying, "Do you know who I am? I'm a made man and sticking your ring out of the. F- Come on, man. That that does not go well for Ozzy. No, no. <laughs> not in the least. No, but, uh, but and then you got Dusty, who's got a fight and claw just to get an, another chance. When all he does is win everywhere he goes. Every team that he's taken over, he makes better. Every team, he yeah. brings you right to the doorstep, and and it's like, and what he did with the Astros this year, salvaging what could have been the worst potential situation ever. Oh yeah, like huge, huge hat tip to him. It it was difficult for me because. You know, uh, obviously, you know, being a Cleveland fan, we had Trevor Bauer. We had the the Indians and Astros went against each other a few different ways. So, um, so I I certainly know love lost for the Astros, and and they certainly deserved the punishments that they got, and the players, frankly, also deserve some punishments. But but once they hired Dusty, I was like, oh man. I'm conflicted now because like, I want Dusty to do well, but it's the Astros. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Yankee fan, so I. My Astros hate – and the Astros were the team that I grew up with because being from Louisiana, you drive, drive mm-hmm. to Houston. We had family in Houston. So I spent many a day in the Astrodome um, watching that team over the years. So I have some affection for it. But once they came to the American League and then what's happened the last few years uh, for the Yankees in particular with them, it's just – yeah. I had, but for Dusty, I wanted him to have that opportunity to go up against the Dodgers – since he had had, you know, that's where he made his name as a player. And I thought that would have been a fantastic story. Um, but I wouldn't have wanted either one of those teams to win, frankly. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I hate both of them. I hate the Dodgers. I hate the Astros. <laughs> but, uh, but in baseball, I do, I do want to get your thoughts on this. Um, Kim Ng with the, with the Marlins. That is awesome. The, the highest ranking female in baseball as general manager. Of course, she has – that experience with Jeter and with Mattingly and other folks going back to their time with the Yankees. But like, it seems like for six, seven years, she's been on the list of people who should be a GM. And now she finally Mm -hmm. gets a shot. 
Yeah, that was that was awesome news. I mean, that was great to see. She's definitely deserving of the position. And like you said, she's been a finalist, I think, for like six or seven of the last GM openings. I think I saw that I can't confirm that I fact-checked this myself, but I think I saw that she's the first female GM of any men's sports team, period, not just baseball. So I think like the, that's, the other highest was um, Amy Trask with the uh, mm-hmm. Raiders. She, she wasn't, you know, she was just below. So yeah. 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 So that was, that was awesome. That was, that was great, great news to see this morning. Super excited for her. And uh, I think she's going to, going to kick ass there with the Marlins. Yeah. And they were surprised this year too. Uh, I didn't expect them to be as, as solid as they were people. I, I was one of those people who thought Jeter was had gotten in over his head um, with that situation, but it paid off for him um, in year, in year two. You did, and you're wearing your gear today, and folks can't see it, but you're wearing your gear today <laughs> because you guys did just make, and it was like, what, two hours ago maybe, um, an announcement on your uh, newest brand, uh, the DC Stealth. I love the design. I'm going to tell you the one thing is that announcers are going to hate the numbers. That's the <laughs> one thing. I love the jersey, and I love the logo. Announcers are going to be like, I can't see the numbers, but. Yeah, it's uh, there. There will be other variations of the jersey for sure, but that that black lettering, that raised black lettering on the black jersey, uh, I I know that we had looked at a bunch of a bunch of mock-ups, and uh, again, I'm now going to talk about another team I can't stand, but like Liverpool, they came out with an all-black jersey similar with the black raised crest over over the black jersey, and it just looked awesome yeah it's like and <laughs> yeah and so we we were like all right we tried a few different color variations on the brand and we had looked at like you know red and blue and then i was kind of like eh, I, red white done. and blue for our dc team like I, yeah it's been done and like we're not doing this to to have invoke some sort of patriotic nonsense within the brand like that's that's not what we're doing here frankly (laughs) frankly our system has allowed these athletes to be exploited for so long we're not going to turn around now and celebrate the system and so we wanted to have this monochromatic variation we wanted to have one team that was a monochromatic brand and for me at least when i looked at our cities uh, and wendell was the same way our, our chief marketing officer and we were like it's dc like that, that's the one that we do it with. I, I have no, I can't put my finger on why, but we both had that same reaction of if there's a team that's going to be, you know, variation monochromatic black colorway, that, that's the one to do it with. And so we're super excited. We've been working on this stuff for, for months. Uh, we've got actually four, four different brands are totally done. So we're now, we've got our, our release schedule that's, that's going to come the, over the course of the next few months, we're going to be releasing a team every three or four weeks approximately. And, and right now uh, we're planning on Baltimore being the next one, uh, but we've got Baltimore, Richmond, and, and Charlotte are all done in addition to the DC team and the stealth brand. Like, yeah, we, that whole process has been probably one of the most fun, simultaneously fun and frustrating yes. things that we've done <laughs> yes. with the league. Like <laughs> branding is so it, it's fun. It's a, it's, it is yeah, such it, a labor because I've worked on both sides of it in, in branding for myself. And then also I did public relations and marketing for over a decade. And I was a creative concept person for um, a lot of people. And yeah, because that delicate balance of not being too familiar of not being something that, you know, you, you want to push, like you said, you push the edge, but you don't really know how far to push it till you get it. And then it's, you hope everybody digs it even when, because you find something yeah. you really like. And you're like, if one person says, no, I'm going to be crushed. <laughs> I've learned. So it's funny. We, we actually did an Atlanta brand and it was done. And, and I can now, I can say the name of it and, and all that stuff. Uh, but so it was going to be the, oh, yeah, it's the, yeah, cause we discarded, it was going to be the Atlanta gatekeepers. And I had actually done this big deep dive into Atlanta's history and I could lay out exactly why I still think this would have been a great brand. And I showed it to Wendell. The first time we met, we met it at all-star week in Chicago and Wendell looked at it and was like, the hell is this? 
<laughs> and I mean, this is the guy that we're trying to hire as our chief marketing officer. And, and we ended up doing so. And, and I was crushed. I, I really was. And, and uh, the guy that introduced me to Wendell, who's also on our advisory board, Damon Jones, uh, Damon, Damon was crushed too. Cause him and I were like, total, we were all in on this brand. And eh, I remember that last night in Chicago, like feeling as though my entire world had been turned upside down. Cause like we were, we were totally set on this brand and, and it was still, it was really, I thought it was a really good job done by the artist uh, who, who actually is a creative designer formerly of the NBA. So like all of our brands are going to be, they're super, super top quality. And uh, so we ended up discarding it though. So like, yeah, you, you, you love your kid basically. And then someone's like, you got to get rid of it <laughs> or your pet, maybe not to put it in the context of a kid. And then some, and, and, you know, someone tells you this is terrible. So, but now when, <laughs> once I had that experience, like I'm good now, I'm like, I'm impervious to it, whatever. Like I'm, we're going to believe that we're doing it the way that we think is the right way. Hopefully the majority of people agree, but you know, we're, we're also going to push boundaries I know that when we get to the Richmond brand, like I'm super excited about that one. And I think that there's going to be possibly some, some, there's, there's going to be reaction to it for sure. I'll put, I'll say it that way. There's going to be reactions to our Richmond brand and I'm, I'm super excited to roll it out and, and get it out there. Why we went the way we went. And I know Wendell is too, cause he's also got uh, his families from Richmond too. So that, that one took the longest by far. Like we were, like every time the tiniest little details we were super sensitive on that brand because we both have this personal connection to it so i i, I t told wendell i think it was yesterday i said i i enjoy channeling a local dc person or channeling a local baltimore person to figure out what they would like i don't like actually being the local person <laughs> like so so when we got to yeah the whole experience going through the richmond brand was was almost painful at times because like you just put all this heap all this additional pressure on yourself to like get it perfect and uh so I'm, I'm glad we're past that one. I don't have, I mean, I have connections to the other cities too, but I don't have that, that direct tie to it. But yeah, we're, we're, we're super excited about the stealth brand. Um, so far it seems to have been positively received, but I mean, at the end of the day, it is what it is at this point. Uh, and, I, definitely, uh, I think people I gotta enjoy it. I got to get a shirt. Um, definitely. Cause I also see like the elements that, that are incorporated. Some of the gaming culture is definitely reflected in some, in, in the, the design, um, it's clean, but it's also, like I said, it's innovative. And that's why I think it, it, if that's the direction that you guys have, then yeah, I think we want to, you know, athletes want to be, style is important to them. And they, they want to look good while they play. And certainly for a marketing standpoint, you don't want to be something that blends in with the rest of the crowd. So I, I think it's a great step. And it's already, uh, the merchandise is going to be available soon, isn't it? If it's not up already. It's already, uh, you can go to the pcleague.com slash merch, uh, or you can just go to our website and navigate yourself there pretty easily. But yeah, the, the merch, the merch is already there. The, the branding, uh, outlay is there. You can see some of the elements, um, why we went the direction we went, um, you know, the, but, but yeah, we're, we're super excited about how we rolled it out and the, so far the reception that we've gotten. Um, for parents who might be listening or athletes who, who come across this, um, what is the, the process as you move forward? If they're interested in finding out more about it, if, if how is the, the scouting process going to go? Um, have y'all gotten that deep yet? Yeah. I mean, we've been talking with players throughout the summer um, and now the fall as well. Uh, we've been keeping an eye, obviously that going, I guess, going back to challenges, going back to your earlier question, not meeting players in person. That's been a big, a big deal for us because the good news is, is the NCAA, you know, um, self-inflicted this like no contact period for a rather long period of time uh, for, for future recruiting classes. So we kind of had an open door to just reach out to players and connect with them. And so that was both a challenge, but then it ended up being a good thing because we did get to talk with a lot of people. Um, you know, we operate a little differently than your traditional college program in that 
or rather professional sports or college program. So all the recruiting is done through our league office as opposed through any individual team. The coaches are not the ones out recruiting players. You know, that's going to be David and his basketball ops team. That's who's doing the recruiting within the, the PCL system. Uh, the, the choice gets left up to the players as to where they want to go. The only point at which we have to tell a player a particular city is off limits is once we've filled the roster. Right. So, you know, once we're to 12 players for a team, not a whole lot we can do about that. But otherwise, the player gets to choose ultimately where they're going to get to go. Um, and so in, in terms of players and, co- and, and their families reaching out, you know, we, we've got our website set up. You can go and see exactly what sort of compensation packages are going to be offered. You can see, you know, the scholarship component of this, which I know we touched on, but like you can complete your, your education on a non-continuous basis. So, you know, you can go to league and come back and finish your degree when you, when you're ready. Uh, so you can get all that information on the site. Uh, we also have a contact address for players that want to reach out. Generally, you know, we ask them to send whatever film and information you have, just because again, right. we can't jump on a plane and go meet you and see you right now. So, you know, whatever you can send to us uh, sort of thing is, is the way we've been doing it. And we're excited. We've had a lot of really high quality players reach out and express their interest. Uh, We've talked with a lot of families. I think we've, we've put together a really compelling package. It's just, you know, um, starting anything is difficult. Starting something in a pandemic is even more difficult. Uh, So it's just a matter of us continuing to execute so that these guys are going to have a place to play come next summer. Some folks might've viewed the G league and what it did as, as direct competition with you. I don't see it that way because what you're doing is completely different in my mind. And it's also still geared towards the player more so than the product. My thing with the G League is, okay, fine, you want to give out more money, but ultimately what you're trying to create is more people who buy into the NBA system. You're developing NBA-specific people. And I think in yours, you're trying to develop the best, with these educational options, the best professional basketball player this person can be, however that manifests for them down the road. Exactly. I mean, that's, we, we are painting with a, with a much broader brush. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing. It, I think the G League, what they're doing is great for us because it continues again to show that we're right, that these mm-hmm. players want other options and that they're willing to go places that aren't called Duke and Kentucky and UNC. And, but at the same time, it's such a discreet opportunity. You know, it's only going to be five or six players for the first few years. Maybe they expand it though maybe once the one and done rule goes away, they just drop this team. You know, we don't, we don't, there's no guarantee that there's going to be a second mm-hmm. or third season of, I think they're called the ignite, the G league ignite. So I think it it's good for us in that it's a proof of concept piece to it, but then it's also not all that um, competitive to what we're trying to do mm-hmm. because we want to have 96 players. They're going to have six and there's, for over 4,300 Division One scholarship basketball players right now. So, you know, and, even if we're, we're successful, that's half a percent of the entire player pool. And, and quite frankly, to, to be direct, it's, there are going to be a number of schools that do not return collegiate basketball programs next year. There are going to be schools that have to cut back in their, their budgets. Um, there may be schools that don't come back next year. Um, and so, you know, the NCAA can't cover for all those kids. They won't be able to do it. it the NBA certainly doesn't have a home for all those kids. And there are going to be a number of elite prospects who, yeah, it just does not make sense for them to do this anymore, to, to go through this system of, I'm not getting anything other than what I have to hide or go through this charade of getting. And Ultimately, you don't have anything long-term to trade in for it if it doesn't pan out. And we see all these kids, it's not about the one and done. It's about they have no other preparation for anything, no gateway to anything. Right. I mean, take, take David as an example or, or Aaron Kraft. And, and that's maybe a good, a good comparison there because both were four-year superstar college basketball players. Now, David ends up, you know, going to the league and having arguably a Hall of Fame career and playing for 15 years in the NBA. Aaron was lucky to 
you know, get into the, to the European leagues, but they were both incredible college basketball players that generated so much money for their schools. You know, Aaron Kraft, both of them could have walked out of college with 600,000 plus whatever they get endorsement wise, plus not being restricted in what they could major in and otherwise the classes that they would take because of their, because our season's in the summer as opposed to during the school year. You know, so that that guy that's going to be in college for four years, I think has more opportunity with us than with the NCAA. You know, I know that everybody's hyper-focused on the one and done players and I get it. Like, those are the one, those are the names that everybody knows. Uh, so of course we're going to talk about them more, but the two and done guys, the three and done guys, the guys that go all the way through and then, you know, maybe they get into the NBA or maybe they go overseas. Like the, the PCL is going to be a great home for that entire range. And the other one I would throw out or a couple other ones I would throw out because of our expanded outlook on education guys that are academically ineligible instead if you go our route we can build you up through the community college we can build you up through an online program or vocational school trade school you know learn to do something with your hands but still get a valuable education out of it that athlete whereas you know everybody knows that player that you know, is better than, you know, better than Michael Jordan or better, better than LeBron James, but never played in the NBA and, and they just play, you know, uh, street hoops sort of thing. Like everybody knows that guy that didn't get the chance. We think that that player we can scoop up and provide an opportunity to, to build up and, and hopefully be successful on and off the court. And then international players, you know, right now, <clears throat> what, Adija, I know the Cavs are mm-hmm. looking at taking him we aren't going to know how he works within professional basketball in the U S until he steps foot on an NBA court. (laughs) All we know is what he did in the Israeli leagues and he was getting paid over there. So like, why, why would he come to, to Duke or, or, you know, whatever blue blood program you want to pick and not get paid paid probably since he was what 16, (laughs) 17. If you're really good, Tony Parker was getting paid at yeah, 14. <laughs> Porzingis was yeah. getting paid at 14. Yeah, so like you're already ineligible. So like that that group of players that want to know and want to have a better platform before going to the NBA, which we've talked with players like that from Asia and from Europe, especially, you know, that's another great stepping stone that the PCL can provide is, okay, come and play against some of the best college age talent in the country in the world and get paid while you're doing it not don't you don't have to give up your salary you know we're we're still going to give you a salary and we're still going to provide you with an education and maybe that education isn't the focal point but like if you're a foreign born player that doesn't speak english like hey let's get you let's get you into some some english classes you know mm-hmm. so that we can we can start to prepare you from a media standpoint like let's build you up in that way, because you're going to have, you know, branding, personal branding is such a critical thing, especially in basketball. Like we'll build you up in that way while you're with us. So I think that the PCL model, it's flexibility. That's why I would, or rather, that's why I was so focused on maintaining that flexibility Mm -hmm. within the PCL model so that we could be something for a whole range of players and not just focused on the one and done's. And there's, it's not coach-focused. The coaches will not be the stars of your league. You don't have to kowtow to them because they share – you're hiring people with a common purpose, which is to develop these players. Yeah, wins and losses are part of that, but you want to see – you want to give those players what you're promising them, which is competitive basketball development. Yeah, exactly. And, and I go through this at length. We, you know, we, we do have one coaching staff in place. We're probably going to be announcing them in the next couple of weeks here. Um, we've been talking with others. I go through just one conversation after another, after another with them to say, like, we need to rewire your brain. <laughs> you're, you're not a recruiter anymore. That is not your primary job. What I want you focused on is developing and coaching basketball players, which sounds crazy that I should have to, that we should have to like be so explicit about it, but Mm -hmm. that's 
what the co- I mean, the college system, if you don't recruit well, you don't keep your job. It doesn't matter how good of a coach you are. So they're all hyper-focused on recruiting and not necessarily on coaching, even though they all hate recruiting. So, uh, but removing that piece of it and getting them to refocus on, look, I'm not going to grade you on your wins and losses. I'm not going to grade you on where your recruiting class ranks. Like none of that matters to us. What matters is what do you do with the players that we put on the team? And you've taken that academic burden off of their shoulders as well of having to keep up a GPA because that's not their job anymore. Like you said, it's just basketball. We've got people over there for that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, we, we, and our, you know, the PCL foundations, academic staff and the PCL's league office, like we're the ones focused on disciplinary stuff. We're the ones focused on making sure that they're doing the right things educationally. None of that is on you just focus on coaching. (laughs) And, and that's also been, you know, a great sales pitch to these coaches too, that just want to coach. Like they don't want all the, the other noise that comes with a college job. So that, that I think has put us in a good position to have a high caliber of, of coaches within the league. But again, them not being the the primary focal point, like it is in college basketball. Absolutely. I mean, I just, there's so much potential here and I'm so, I'm still just as excited. I was from the first day that we talked about this and I just continue to look forward to it because yeah, I want to see you tear down the system and build something new. Um, and so I'm glad you're an agent of chaos in that regard. And I'm glad we've gotten to know each other. And I hope it just, this relationship continues. Tell folks also about your podcast, Forward Thinking. You've had some amazing guests on there. And I think it's also done a great job of not only promoting your message, but expanding people and bringing them into it. Yeah, that was, that was the original idea. It was like, look, we've, we've got access to a lot of great people. And we're obviously trying to amplify our own message, but there's a lot of things that sort of naturally just tuck right in with what we're trying to do. And so um, we were we were very fortunate. Soledad was our first guest. Uh, and then I think we had Andre Iguodala, I think was second. Like within that first group of five, we had Baron <laughs> Davis, Andre Iguodala, Soledad, Bamani Jones, and Howard Bryant. Like we, we did, we did... Uh, a great, a great lineup there. And then we had Wendell Pierce keeping yep. to the, the Louisiana ties. Wendell, Wendell was amazing. Um, we, we went for two hours and we actually had to stop him because we were like, you probably got other stuff to do today, man. Like, <laughs> you're, you're kind of an important person. Like you probably got other stuff. So um, that, but that was an incredible conversation. And, and yeah, so, I mean, that's been the idea behind it was there's a lot of people out there that are trying to do social good and let's you know let's bring attention to what other people are doing it'll help amplify our message and uh, it also is a sort of a softer way for people to to interact with us because you know we can be a little polarizing in our approach to to things so uh this kind of gives that softer like hey i want to help you guys but like i can't put my name to this because that might jeopardize the day job so how how can i help come on to the podcast (laughs) Uh, so it'll be yeah, we'll keep we'll keep it that way. So it's been it's been great, and people have been very uh, very kind with their time and and agreeing to participate in it. And uh, David and I have had a lot of fun so far doing it. And uh, sometimes it can be a lot of work. I will say that was the you you well know the the amount of time and energy and effort that goes into to podcasting. And uh, I maybe underestimated that a little bit, but uh, but otherwise it's been a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, please tell folks how they can check the league one more time. Tell them how they can check, find the podcast and uh, how they can follow on, t- on social media. Yeah. So the league's website, the PC uh, pretty much from there, you can find our, you can find our merch. You can find all the information on the podcast. You can find out more information on the DC stealth brand uh, on Twitter. We're at the underscore PC league. And then on Instagram, we're at the PC league. And um, yeah, forward thinking. We're on every major podcasting platform, and like I said, you could at least find uh, find more information about us at the PCL's website. Uh, do you have a new one coming up soon? Uh, yeah. So we just uh, yesterday we actually released an episode with the PCL team, which was interesting. Oh, okay. Getting okay. the five of us together. Uh, yeah. So we. Uh, we talked about how each of us came to be a part of the PCL. And then we talked about the stealth brand, Wendell especially, uh, 
got got a chance to shine to talk a bit about how we we built this brand out um and then coming up i i we're still getting dates finalized and everything but um so I don't know the specific order, but we're going to have Jeffrey Kessler is going to be joining us. He was the you know, lead counsel on the O'Bannon and Alston cases. Um, and he also was, you know, a critical member in getting free agency in the NFL. Uh, so he's going to come in and talk about uh, the, his, his career within antitrust and labor law and creating athletes rights in that space. Uh, we're also going to have Senator Chris Murphy from, from Connecticut. He's going to come in and talk with us about, the federal efforts on name, image, and likeness legislation. I think that's going to be a really cool, really looking for, I'm really looking forward to that conversation, especially. And uh, we're working on some other bigger actors and actresses and, and athletes, but uh, until I get confirmations, I won't say any names yet. No, but that's, that's a, that's a heavy hitting lineup you got there. So I definitely be looking forward to those as well, man. Ricky, thank you so much again for coming on. I hope we get to talk again soon, my friend. Absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're welcome. So until the next time for Ricky Vellante, I am David Grubb, and this has been Hard to Paint. I'll talk to you all again on Monday. Thanks for listening.